Trail and Ultra Runners, what is going on? What's happening? Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast. As always, I'm your humble host, Coach Jason Coop. And on this episode of the podcast, it is all about something that we as runners are really, really horrible at. It's all about injury prevention and treatment. Let's face it. We're terrible at preventing injuries. Everybody knows a runner that has been injured. Few of us know runners that have not been injured. And the ones that haven't been injured, I actually think that you guys and gals are lying. So to cut through all that clutter today and to provide some light on the subject, I brought in Dr. Emily Krauss, who specializes in physical medicine and rehabilitation sports medicine at the Stanford Children's Orthopedic and Sports Medicine Center. Emily is a fantastic athlete in her own right, having competed, completed, that's what I wanted to say, nine marathons, including the Boston Marathon, as well as an ultra runner. But more important to this discussion is she's also performing a lot of research on ultra runners themselves through the Western States 100 and through other means. She is an absolute wealth of information. I have sent my runners to her and I just cannot say enough about what she is able to do for the community and how she is able to help runners. So I'm gonna get right out of the way. Here's my conversation with Dr. Emily Krauss. When we were talking offline, it's really interesting that we've actually never come into face-to-face or in this in this case in the COVID era virtual communication, even though we've literally been running around in circles together, as well as you have treated a number of my athletes uh, when they've gotten injured. So that's going to be a topic today. We're going to talk about injury. And I always feel that this is an area within coaching, within athletics, and in, and in particular within the endurance realm that we absolutely suck at. Like coaching is an interdisciplinary profession and I feel like we have a pretty good fix on how to improve athletes. We know what the dose response relationship is to different types of workouts and how much mileage, you know, athletes need to improve and things like that. But this injury thing in endurance sports in particular I have no other way to describe it, that we just, we absolutely fail at this. Not that we're not trying, but we absolutely fail at this every single year. Every single time there's a study that come, that comes out that tells us what the injury prevalence rate is amongst endurance athletes. I look at it and I go, okay, well, let's just say it's half, right? It depends on what study you're looking at. Let's just say, say it's half. The other half are lying. I mean, that's the only way that I can encapsulate those studies. So to start out with, Emily, why, why, why is this the case? Why is this? The, why are we so bad at this? Oh, I, I mean, don't be so hard on yourself, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm throwing people like you under the bus because you're like primarily involved in keeping athletes healthy, but it's like, we're trying, but we're just not, very, I can't, it's like the weathermen, right? When the weathermen are off, when their forecast is off 70% of the time, and I live in Colorado Springs and the weather forecasting there is notoriously horrible. I look at that as the failure of the profession. The professionals can't get enough, you know, of a fix on the situation to give us a good weather prediction. This injury thing is the same thing because the prevalent rates, the prevalency rates are so high. I mean, that's true. There's nothing that we can change about that. Running is an injurious sport. 
And I feel most coaches, their goal is to is not to injure their athletes. I think all coaches, that's their goal. But I think there is that fine line between getting an athlete to the start line as healthy as possible, but also performing at their at his or her best. And, and that's the kind of challenging crux of the coach is where does that line go? And each athlete is individual. And that's, I mean, as much as I appreciate you trying to make the effort to understand the why of these injuries, um, I think it's so complicated. And that's why there's still new research that's getting churned out um, on the regular. And I think we as physicians are continually humbled, especially in the sport of ultra ultra marathons and ultra running, um, that we still have so much to learn and understand about that particular sport as to the why and what can we do to reduce overall injury risk as best as possible. I think it's hard to prevent. Um, just like you said, I think the prevalence rates are so high that it's probably going to happen at some point. But I think the question is, how bad is it? And how how soon can that athlete um, return to their activity without really taking too much time off? And I think it depends on the type of injury and some of these other predisposing risk factors and other kind of actions and behaviors that um, maybe aren't as directly related to the training as far as the workout and um, the long run and what maybe the coach is prescribing or coach is writing up as far as their training program. So it's it's complicated, but that's why we're having the conversation <laughs> to, to at least understand what we know. To totally. And I, I, I started actually tracking this with my athletes in the mid 2000s, probably 2005, 2006, because I wanted to understand, was I doing better than the average? Like I wanted to use it as a little bit of a, hey, Coop are you doing a good job with this? And so ever since 2005, 2006, I've tracked the injury rates with my athletes on an annual basis. How many athletes, how many athletes did I have during the year? And then how many of them got injured? And I'm proud to say that I beat the, the averages year after year after year, but they're still horrible. Like they're still, they're still, they're still not, they're still not very good. So we're going to try to get on a pathway to getting better because there's everybody listening to this podcast is an ultra runner and every one of them without fail has been injured. And if you haven't call me, cause I want to know your secret sauce <laughs> or, or you're lying. Um, right. <laughs> so let's start. Let's start on the prevention side of things. We're going to move through this chronologically. We're going to move from prevention to sort of injured, this weird transition phase, to actually injured and then the rehab part. What, do, what does the research tell us and what do we know about the things that can actually be preventative for injury in an endurance? We're going to consider this as an endurance running setting. Mm -hmm. So I think... The first question is, what injury are we talking about? Are we talking about like a tendinopathy or are we talking about a bone stress injury or stress fracture, stress reaction? Are we talking about a blister? I mean, right. all of those right. are going to take very different strategies. And I have a feeling we're thinking more of like the kind of musculoskeletal, probably more so bone, um, because those are the ones that the athletes are and the runners are most afraid to to get in, as part of their training because of the the concern for the the amount of time that they're out. And uh, the the challenge is, it there's a lot of factors that go into play with with an athlete as far as where are they at in their in their training cycle. What's their baseline mileage? How long have they been running? What's their underlying risk kind of profile look like? 
And we're um, a lot of the the work that I've been doing in the kind of ultra marathon world specifically is trying to understand specific risk factors for bone health and kind of get a better handle on that and how that's different from a collegiate runner and adolescent runner. Um, are they the are they the same? Um, I my hunch is no. Um, just because the to get to that ultra marathon or ultra running state, kind of need to get past some of these other milestones and these other points um, to to get to almost that more resilient um, kind of stage of training. So, kind of looking at kind of underlying um, risk factors such as um, nutrition, I think that's a personal interest and in, um, kind of area of research and clinical interest of mine. Is, is an athlete really um, kind of just fueling properly? And we look at things like um, low energy availability and um, how that can relate to overall um, injury risk, specifically bone health and kind of long-term or chronic low energy availability can really lead to disruptions in the hormonal profile of an athlete and um, can really suppress the release of certain hormones that are important for overall bone health, as well as reproductive function. And we're seeing that both in males and females. But, and I can get into more of the definitions if you'd like me to, but I just kind of to give the broad picture right now, as far as just overall risk factors. Um, when I think about low energy availability, we're talking about either overtraining, underfueling, um, so not getting enough caloric intake um, per day or over a period of days. Um, and then um, kind of the combination, usually it's a combination of the boat of both of that, both of those things. And I think it's challenging for an endurance athlete, especially because of that difficulty trying to maintain calories during um, heavy training bouts and training cycles. I'm trying to figure out what their fueling needs are um, when they're doing these big um, adventure days, especially when we're thinking um, at altitude understanding how that's going to affect their metabolism, um, training, um, just overall, just gut health and how their body is going to be able to digest and absorb those calories. So all those factors go into play. And especially during a heavier training load, um, you need to be able to dial that in to avoid that low energy availability over a long period of time. Cause that over time is going to impair the bone health, which then leads to that increased risk of that stress fracture, which we can get into more details with the science um, if you'd like. Um, so there's that whole piece as far as nutrition kind of contributing to bone health. And then there's a whole piece of um, genetic risk. So what is um, just a, an athlete's overall genetic risk profile? Do they have um, an underlying or family history of osteoporosis? Do they have other, maybe even lesser obvious um, risk factors? And um, that's um, one of the topics that we're exploring in um, with some of our Western states research, um, which um, I'd love to share a little bit more about, is how does that genetic risk profile um, play into an athlete's overall risk? And should they adjust, eventually adjust their training or not eventually, but now adjust their training to make sure that they mitigate that risk and kind of take that into account with the whole big picture. So that's something that an athlete should understand. Maybe that's something that's the conversation that they should have with their coaches. Like, Hey, I've got an, ex an extensive family history of low bone mineral density in my family. Maybe we should adjust um, kind of just overall load. And we need to be even more conservative, conservative, increasing training volume from week to week. Um, or just kind of mixing it up. So there's that whole piece. And then I think um, the thinking about kind of overall bone strength 
and the the value of um, kind of strength training to overall build build bone mineral density. And I think that's a hot topic in all of um, endurance running. Like what is the optimal? Um, I think finally we're getting to this point that strength training is valuable for um, just both performance and injury risk reduction. I think the, the research on performance is probably a little bit more robust than the injury risk reduction. But anecdotally, I prescribe strength training or recommend strength training, not just for an injured athlete, but for an uninjured athlete to keep them from injury. And um, I think that dosage and kind of prescribing that strength training is very different based on where that athlete's coming from, whether they're in the mid-season or whether they're in pre-season and how open they are to strength training. Um, if they're going to be like, I personally, like my own as a runner, I have a hard time going to the gym and lifting weights. So you almost need to like find a way to sneak it into the training program. <laughs> or, or you need to like make somebody come with me and like, I need a training buddy who will hold me accountable for that couple of days a week. Or else I'm probably, if there's some, if something's gonna give, it's gonna be the strength training. Cause it's just less, for me, I just get less joy and excitement from, from lifting weights than other people. <laughs> so that's that's the thing that's going to give. But I, I think that there is some value and there is a lot of great research about um, resistance exercise, building overall bone mineral density, and not just in this kind of um, osteoporotic um, kind of perimenopausal female, um, where we kind of think of that very fragile profile. I think there's a lot of value even in um, a young athlete. And, I'm all about longevity kind of starting. I mean, we have young athletes doing, um, doing ultras, no kidding. Uh, which is probably another podcast. Uh, but I think it should, it should really start early, ideally, to kind of get into a good habit and to get the, reap the most benefits. So I think those are kind of the big buckets. And then just overall, like micronutrients, making sure you're getting um, a well-rounded diet, getting that calcium, getting that vitamin D. I think there's um, some probably unexplored research and just overall the influence of iron and um, the fluctuations of, of iron and iron deficiency during different bouts of training, especially in the running world, um, which I can kind of get into a little bit, but it gets really kind of into the weeds as far as um, more in that physiology piece. So I think an athlete needs to think about all of those pieces. And then beyond that, just sleep, stress level, those are also, I think, an athlete forgets sometimes that like the stress of maybe a new job, maybe a pandemic, maybe a, a really like some challenges in a relationship that's going to influence overall um, just kind of baseline stress level. And for me, stress is stress, whether it's stress from a, a workout or stress from a crazy day at work that's going, that needs to be factored in. And um, something I've learned as an athlete is to communicate those, like all the stresses. Sometimes um, I know a coach doesn't want to be um, your therapist, <laughs> but being able to be like, hey, this has been a hell of a week and I am feeling pretty overwhelmed with work and having that coach be able to be like, all right, we need to like dial back and maybe eliminate that workout or adjust it, just the timing of it. Um, to integrate it into the, the training program. And those little things kind of, I think, can help mitigate and kind of keep that training steady and reduce that risk. So, I mean, it's for me, it's a holistic approach, kind of factoring in, in each of these, these um, risk factors and um, possible causes and contributors. 
And it's different for, for each athlete as far as, you know, is this a weekend warrior or is this a kind of dialed, I'm going for kind of the big, the big races and I'm in that elite kind of pro pro category. And, and I think there is a lot of overlap in that conversation, but I think the focus and emphasis um, is a little different too. And I think both all, all of that, all of it's important. So I think you, you just gave me like seven podcast ideas, Emily. Thank you very much. It's a lot of workload on my plate now. It actually makes it a little bit easier because sometimes content is hard to continue to churn out. But the thing that the, that the listeners can learn the most from that entire monologue from is that injuries are, are multifactorial. There's very rarely, unless you fall and you break your collarbone or some, some sort of impact injury, it's very, they are very rarely caused by one singular thing. Yes, there are heavier hitters than others. And that's what we try to filter through when we're working with athletes. Yes, it might be more of this and less of that, but there's always a constellation of things going on. The other thing that I, that really struck me, um, as you were, as you were speaking is, is I was reminded that our theory on why injuries start to crop up has has kind of gone in waves over the years. When I first started coaching, it was all about biomechanics. Biomechanics are the sole cause of injuries. And then it moved to footwear. Everybody went, you know, minimalist shoes, and then they swung over to the maximalist side. And and now the theme, and I don't know whether this this is probably a little bit of additive, you know, there's some Venn diagram overlap, but now there seems to be much more focus on the entire stress load picture and recovery picture, as well as nutrition, which you just mentioned. And I've always found that an in- interesting facet because like as coaches, we've jumped on that. Like I've jumped on the biomechanics ba- bandwagon and wrongfully so. Yes, there are biomechanical factors at play, but it's not like everybody has to have perfect form. Obviously, because everybody would not be injured, right? <laughs> we would have solved that right. problem a long, long time ago, right, Em? <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> you know, and I, it's funny. I so part of my work, I work at Emotion Analysis Sports Performance Lab. I'm the, the medical director. Um, full disc- like, I'm not a biomechanist. I do not spend hours nerding out on, um, you know, is it rear foot strike versus mid foot strike, and what what force vectors are at play. <laughs> um, but I do enjoy having that conversation and kind of learning from experts. And we we chatted. Earlier, we were part of some some happy hour led by a biomechanist with a probably twenty or thirty biomechanics nerds all on a Zoom call debating about some of these topics. And I think that the big question is: so, I, when I have a, a runner, um, usually they're young runners running on a treadmill. We're looking at um, we're doing like three D um, motion capture. I'm looking at their kinetics, looking at their kinematics. And ensure everybody's going to have some nuanced, nuanced differences with their with their form. And and I'm not like I don't break them down and say, hey, your angles off by two degrees. Um, You're at you're at you're at risk for uh, knee pain for the rest of your life. You know, you just just hang up the shoes now. You just better retire. Um, This is is bad news. I mean, for me, it's like it's all there's just there's all these margins of error um, kind of within our body. And I mean, our bodies are resilient to some degree. But for me, it's like, okay, let's get them kind of more balanced, stronger, and we'll get them into a good rehab program. But for me, it's it's having some of those other discussions as far as expectations and, right. hey, this isn't the end all be all. Like, right. 
you need to be thinking about your nutrition. You need to be thinking about um, kind of periodization throughout the year. That's a big issue in California too, as far mm-hmm. as um, I call it COTS, California overtraining syndrome. You just <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna quote you on that. That's really good. <laughs> It just it's it happens and it sneaks up on people too. They realize, you know, I've been running six days, five, six days a week all year round. And for me, I get I get concerned about just load in that right. in in those um in those discussions. But there are also these other other smaller things that aren't as um transparent and you can't see on their 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 training log that that are big contributors or can be big contributors that sometimes an athlete forgets to disclose like, Oh, I changed my diet. I went vegan or I'm trying out this other new diet or, you know, I was trying to, you know, lose a few pounds and decided to just not fuel as well during, during my training or not maybe eat as much um, for my recovery because my appetite's already suppressed. And that's over time can be really problematic um, for just overall injury risk and even just performance too. Right. Okay. So we have this multifactorial picture of which we haven't gotten any good answers and not to be a spoiler, <laughs> we're not going to have any lightning bolt answers by the end of this podcast. I think that right. both of both you and I can agree on that, but we have this multifactorial picture and runners are, they're kind of like nodding their heads and rolling their eyes at the same time. Yeah. I need to rest. Yeah. I need to eat enough. Yeah. I need to control my training load. Yeah. I need to make sure that, you know, I'm doing this, that, and the other, but the inevitably Every runner will come to to this one critical point where they think that they're they, they think that they're going to have an injury or they get a niggle is usually the vocabulary that I hear a lot. And they're trying to decide whether to train or whether to back off and then how to treat it at the same time. This I think is like the ultimate mystery. Because this is, these are the people that go into physical therapy clinics. They're like, hey, can you, you know, help me fix this? And the physical therapist sizes them up and, you know, gives them some modalities or tools, you know, neuromuscular retraining and things like that. But athletes trying to make this decision process by themselves, if they don't have a coach, if they don't have a network around them, really get confounded by this because they don't know whether to back off or whether to keep going forward. So what I want to do next is let's kind of like educate the listeners with what is going on underneath the hood from a physiological standpoint. Let's talk about a musculoskeletal uh, type of injury. What's going on underneath the hood and how can they go through that decision-making process of what to do next if these injuries start to creep up and they're trying to decide how to manage them? Uh, Oh, the like... The niggle, you know, it's so funny. I, that, <laughs> How else would you describe I, it? The first time I, the, I, I feel like I use that every now and then, kind of clinically, or I try to talk to other other physicians about the niggle, and they're like, "What did you?" What just say? I know, right? You never pass muster in a, like a clinical standpoint, but I don't. It's used so, and I am a vocabulary yeah. stickler. Ask my coaches; I get on them whenever they screw up vocabulary, and I hammer myself whenever I get vocabulary wrong, or I just make shit up just because I can't describe it. This mm-hmm. is one that I just let fly because I don't have better. I don't have. I don't have better language to describe it. So if anybody has better language, please let me know what it is. Yeah. And I think it does. It kind of captures this. A niggle can be just a, a little, a little tweak, a little, some, some residual soreness from the day before, you know, I slept wrong. It's got a little niggle, but it also can be a very early 
kind of the the red light, the like the check engine sign is starting to to flash, and it's so early and it's so hard to interpret or distinguish, you know, is this a nothing or is this a something that really requires a change in action? I think that's hard for an athlete and especially an athlete who maybe has a history of an injury. I think it can be, it can drive, drive them crazy. And I've, I've seen it on both, both ends where it's like, Oh yeah, I had this, I had the shin pain, but I thought it was a nothing. And so I just finished my, my 20 miler on it and it got really bad at the end. And then I'm limping and hobbling off the, I'm home. And those, there are those moments where, first of all, I think if, if the niggle continues to increase during a, a training, like during a workout or during, or if it, if it lingers post-workout and to the, by the end of the day really is, is almost like you, you don't want to get up. You don't want to walk because of a, how, how much it's really started to almost get in inflamed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I think that's a great, um, time to say, okay, let's take a day or two off, kind of assess and decide whether this needs to be explored, um, with a kind of a medical or kind of with the sports medicine team, or, um, maybe it will resolve. And I think the, the challenge is, I mean, kind of distinguishing between bone and non-bone or kind of bone and kind of soft tissue, the management is, is very different. Right. And, I think it's really hard for an athlete to distinguish, is this hip pain that I'm feeling at the front of my hip? And most of the time that first, first theory is, oh, it's my hip flexor. It's just a little, I just tweaked my hip flexor. I, I ran up this um, hill or like I was, I was down running down a really steep um, section. And I think I just um, kind of overdid it or really kind of tweaked my hip flexor. Um, That's fine. But if it's really kind of tendon hip flexor, there may be some some tightness, but there shouldn't be kind of that impact type pain every step and that kind of deeper. And you oftentimes it's sometimes it's even more deep and kind of harder to to describe. And that's where a lot of the bone injuries, especially around the pelvis, I I start to hear that description. You know, there's this vague, almost sometimes migrating. Yeah. And whether it's um, kind of stemming from like the deep, like femur, the femoral neck, um, also the sacrum is really hard because that's this like, it's my SI joint. So I think sometimes these athletes get into injury denial a little bit and start to chalk it up to maybe something that they were told previously when they did have that diagnosis. And they're like, oh, it's just my SI joint again. Um, I just need to do this, this little stretch or this little kind of hop, skip and a dance and then I can go back to, to my training. And I think the, what needs to happen and what, what should happen is I think body awareness is, is important. I think understanding when an athlete may be kind of catastrophizing based on a prior history is important to just be aware and have um, kind of a, a frank conversation of like, are you really having severe pain or are you scared because you were so set back by this, this prior injury. And part of it's valid because um, a big risk factor for future injury is history of injury or history of that injury, and especially with um, bone stress injury. But I think kind of getting into a bit more of a conversation. And for me, one or two days of modified activity to kind of for, further explore um, for an athlete and kind of adjusting training, not to the point of sabotaging their their training block but really maybe saving them 
is is better. And I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Is better than than <laughs> trying to push through. I'm I'm not the coach. Another disclosure. I'm not a coach, and I'm definitely more conservative. And I'm sure um, sometimes coaches get frustrated because I'm like, hey, let's dial back and or just kind of take that on the bike. I mean, or take that to a different um, mode of activity if they're trying to maintain some aerobic capacity or trying to make sure they don't lose fitness. Um, I think that the, the, the neurotic side of the athlete really starts to take over. And, and I think um, for me, it's, it's almost better to, for an athlete to, to relax, realize that you know, if you meet with the right person, you can try to distinguish whether this is um, a, a couple of days, maybe a week of, of adjustment. And really, especially with early bone stress injuries or early stress reactions, if you catch them early enough and you kind of curb the, the training or adjust the training enough, oftentimes you can get redirected. Um, an example, because I think sometimes examples are nice. I had an athlete who had kind of vague thigh pain and she, she had a history of, of bone stress injuries, but nothing, nothing so um, intense or so severe um, or kind of higher risk. But she, she also has a lot of athletes. She's an elite athlete and, and knows, knows bone and knows she doesn't want to mess with bone, but it was like mid thigh. And there's a certain, certain maneuver is like getting out of a car where she was really kind of loading the, the, mm. the and that, really triggered her her pain and she's like i just something's not right she tried to do a workout on the track she declined and really just dropped off towards the end of the workout um ended up getting um kind of had the hunch got the mri had a, a low grade stress reaction low grade bone stress injury of the femoral shaft um she was able i worked really closely with her physical therapist talked about kind of load management and what the next 4 weeks would look like um as soon as um we felt it was safe we got her on the bike doing workouts on the bike um i think people forget how awful a bike workout can be it's 100%. almost more torturous, yeah. more torturous than a than um, a lot of um running workouts and and she was able to get back in a really, I mean, like a four to six week time frame. And I mean, I don't want to give that as an example that, oh, okay, all I hear was four to six weeks. That's what I'm taking away right, from this. But right. no, it's the, we caught it early enough and we were able to really get that athlete back safely to that elite level. And she probably wasn't doing higher, like higher level workouts for quite a bit, a little bit longer, but, you know, femoral shaft stress reaction is way different than a fracture. Right. Like if you wait. And you train and you get to the point where that literally breaking point, you're either out for the season or you got a rod in your, in your, in your, and, and those are the the things that the athlete needs to listen to is that, you know, we got to adjust the bone remodeling during that, that time. And sometimes it's just taking the dial back. That's enough to allow that remodeling and um, kind of that reset to happen. You, you, You asked me this and I'll answer it. Um, the way that I look at this through a coach is through a directional lens, because I realize that athletes are always going to have pains and things like that just through the course of training. It's a hard freaking sport, you know, running and trail running and ultra running. It's a hard freaking sport. You're asking, you're intentionally damaging your body in order to get better. That's the, that's the fundamental proposition with, with physical and endurance training. Um, but I use a directional arrow is I see a trend line that's getting worse 
that's when I'll start to put in advanced interventions. Go see your physical therapist. We're going to, you know, back off the training load. We're going to do X, Y, or Z, whatever the, the thing warrants. If the trend line is the same or it's getting better, then I kind of, kind of, I realize that, that painful sensations, I was choosing my words very carefully there, that painful sensations are part of the occupation. It's part of the gig. It's part of the game. You're not going to be able to avoid those all the time. And then sometimes it's what you want in order to overload the body. So I've always used that kind of rule, that directional rule of thumb, where if I see things trending in the wrong way for two or three days, that's, that, that's kind of, that's my, that's my litmus test. Not one day, not one day that where the pain's you know, just a little bit, two or three days where it's gradually getting worse because I, I've always gone back to this fundamental proposition that we're predominantly dealing with overuse injuries. And I'm emphasizing that intentionally. They don't happen because typically don't happen because I took a wrong step over here or I did this hill workout or whatever. That is just the end point. In reality, that overuse injury has been brewing for weeks or sometimes months. And if you have a good dialogue, and if an athlete has good body awareness, to use your vocabulary, um, if they have a, if they have good body awareness, they likely have noticed that or should have noticed that weeks ago and didn't pay attention to those directional arrows. That that's fundamentally that's the way I've always tried. I've always tried to manage it. I don't play physical therapist and okay, go, you know, do e-stem or contrast baths or anything like that. I call them the experts when it's, when it's time for that. But as somebody who monitors training on a day-to-day basis, that's kind of my fundamental, my fundamental role as a coach. I've just found that that directional arrow can, you get, you get more good answers out of that and you don't have to curl the curtail the training unnecessarily. The linchpin in all of that is, is the athlete has to constantly be updating the subjective feedback within their training log because it's so important mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. sounds like that was like a nice nice plug for your <laughs> God, well, no. it's taken me a while to do that but I, like i said i still think i suck at it i think everybody sucks at it um it's it's hard i mean it is it is hard this transition between not being injured and having some like something to deal with something that you're aware of and getting injured if we had a perfect crystal ball, we'd never even get to the first step, right? But the reality is, is that we don't. Is that we don't. A, a lot of what what you've been doing recently is research to try to illuminate what is going on underneath the hood, specifically within an ultra running population. And so, I want to give you a little bit of the floor. This podcast is going to come out before Western States, so hopefully, you can recruit the entire four hundred some odd person <laughs> field into this study. Do you guys? Let me let me pause for a second. Get on soapbox for just a minute or so here. The Western States Endurance Run does a phenomenal job of supporting research. And I had to look this up the other day because I'm in the middle of writing the second edition of the book, and that's not a shameless plug. It's just background story. When I when I first started coaching, the year that I first started coaching ultra runners, throughout that entire year, exactly six papers were published that had some version of ultra running in the title. I had to go back, do a retroactive PubMed search to find this. Ultra running, ultra marathon, whatever it was. Exactly six during the year. That's not a lot. Now, there's research that existed before that, but 15 years ago, it was really skinny. And it was very, very hard to drive research and science-based 
practice when none actually exists. Western States has been at the forefront of changing that. They're not the only player. There's a lot of other players in there, but they actively support it to the nth degree. They pull money out of their budget to support it. I just think it's awesome. Emily, you're involved in that. So thank you. Anybody who gets the opportunity to participate in one of these research projects that's done through a race, through their local university, do it. Take advantage of it. It helps everybody. It feels good to do afterwards. Maybe the study is a little invasive and it doesn't feel good during, but afterwards, (laughs) when you look back on the experience, you'll actually feel that you've contributed to something. And we're at the stage where all these contributions are incredibly important and they they add just a tremendous amount to our knowledge to it. That's my soapbox. Go and join Emily's study. What, so what's going to come on tap? What have you been doing with Western States and what's going to kind of come come next? Jason, thank you for that plug. Um, we are, yeah, we'll be sending out a recruitment email, email probably early May. And that's really helpful. And I think um, so important too, to just get a diverse population and just any information is going to contribute to um, the, the science and the understanding of um, ultra- ultra running. But so this is our, our third year. Um, we've been lucky to be able to conduct research at Western States um, in 2018 and 2019. And it's really been a continuation of um, this, this idea and this um, hypothesis. So, so you'll um, see or you'll notice that we don't have a lot of um, publications out yet because we're trying to we're a little underpowered. We don't have enough um, athletes to really make um, broad it's conclusions. Hard. It's so hard. Yeah. I'm going to like put that little asterisk. Yeah. Like, hey, um, we're still some of the some of the stuff that I'll talk about. Um, we still need a bit more information to make sure that it like holds up. But um, our studies, um, so there are primary analysis. We're trying to look at um, different risk factors, and I'll kind of get into some definitions with female and male athlete triad. Um, so those triad risk factors um, in ultramarathon runners and how it really relates to, to bone health. And we're also looking at um, specifically that association with stress fracture risk, um, bone mineral density risk, and um, the relationship with um, different um, genetic risk scores. And so that's um, all kind of things that we can get at the race site or at the, at, um, squaw the days before. Um, You're going to call it Olympic Valley. Now somebody's going to come out after us, after this podcast is over since they officially changed the oh, name to oh, Olympic oh, Valley. I know. Thank you. Olympic I, Valley. Okay. I'm helping you out on that one, Emily, you know, what's going to come down the pipeline if we let that stand. Yes. 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 I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate that correction. Uh, yeah. Olympic Valley. And um, we're going to be on um, on site. So um, we have um, funding. We've secured funding from Western States Research Foundation. Um, it's been wonderful working with them. They've been super supportive. Each year they review different um, research proposals. So um, they don't play favorites. Um, we, we pitch our, um, our um, proposal and kind of what our, our funding needs are each year. And um, this year, actually last year, we got funded um, and just um, because the, the race was postponed or canceled, um, we, they were, we were able to push it to um, 2021. And so we have um, partnerships with Inside Tracker. We actually get um, blood draws, fasting blood draws. Shockingly enough, we get um, runners to get um, usually early in the morning. They'll come over and um, get lab, lab draws at um, a site um, on um, really, really near actually registration. And then we also get um, bone mineral density testing through um, DEXA scans, type of um, 
kind of the method, um, I guess the gold standard, I'm using air quotes right now to, to measure bone health. Um, there are limitations and with, with um, DEXA scanning, um, but it's kind of our own kind of true, the only true measure that's easily accessible through the clinical setting. So we use that to um, just get a better understanding of an athlete's um, bone mineral density. And then we also give each athlete an extensive pre-race questionnaire that they fill out online and try to get more information about um, kind of where they are as, as a runner, like what's their, their training level, how, um, how competitive do they interpret their, their training to be, um, what is their um, kind of injury history. Um, we can't actually, we don't follow these athletes in the future, so prospectively, but we do try to get as much information as um, prior injuries, including bone injuries, um, genetic history, as far as kind of any family history. And then we also ask about um, for females, um, menstrual history and in males, we do ask some other kind of kind of sex related questions about um, kind of libido and morning erections, which can be influenced by hormonal suppression um, through the low energy availability, kind of going back to that piece. And then um, we gather all that information and we also look at their um, kind of finishing, like how many of those athletes who got all that information actually finished the race. Um, we do a little bit with um, performance, but really it's more just trying to get this, um, this risk um, profile. So I want to kind of share some of the information we are trying, we are um, pub, we've submitted a manuscript, it's under review. Hopefully um, we submitted our revisions um, within the last month. So hopefully it gets accepted. Um, I was um, submitted to a, a journal and a reputable journal, and it would be great to be able to get that out hopefully before the race. Um, but some of the findings were um, one, and I just don't want to misquote myself. So <laughs> I love the fact that you have to look up your own quote in the <laughs> research paper to get it right. I get paranoid <laughs> when I'm quoting other people, but the fact that it's you, that makes me feel a lot better. Well, lots of statistics and numbers. And I, I, I'm really hard. I mean, it just it's hard for me to um, keep those numbers in my head. But um, 37.5% of um, women reported a history of bone stress injury. That's higher than some of the other um, prevalent studies that are out there on ultramarathon runners. I think um, those are around like 20%, 21% in females. So higher bone stress injury or stress fracture um, rate. Um, and then in males, it was about 25, 20.5%. Yeah, the dudes are lying. This is, I don't buy that for a second. The guys are lying. <laughs> There's no way that's only 25%. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the overall um, bone mineral density, it was interesting. Um, males had low, a greater percentage of lower um, bone mineral density Z scores. So we mm. kind of, that's how we, how we score. Um, we look at the lumbar spine. That's kind of our best indicator of kind of bone health. It has a kind of a mix of trabecular and cortical bone or different types of bone. And um, the 30%, 30% of men had bone mineral density um, Z scores of less than negative one, which, so the other challenge with bone density and measuring bone mineral density with these um, DEXA scans is the scoring system is based on um, healthy age-matched controls. So people out in the community that may not be engaging in weight-bearing sport. So you would think that a runner, especially an ultra runner, who is putting a lot of load into their bone every day should have overall higher bone mineral density. So if you look at kind of what is like a, a, what is osteoporotic um, definition um, in a general population, that is different than what we kind of through American College of Sports Medicine um, guidelines for what low bone mineral density is in our in our mind. And so we use less than negative one as our cutoff. 
And so 30% of males had bone mineral density Z scores less than negative one. However, in females, only 16.7%, um, so almost just almost 17% mm. have had scores less than negative one. And so for, for me, it's like, what, what is going on with this, this male ultra running population that kind of is, is higher as far as higher risk um, based on, based on Z-score and just overall under kind of lower bone stress injury history. That's right. And, they're lying. I'm telling you, Emily, this, I've got the answer for your research right here. They're lying. If the, the, the mech, if the mechanism, if part of, if, if a big part of the mechanism is poor bone health and the guys showing up to the line have markedly poorer bone health than the women, they, sh they should have more bony stress injuries coming into the race. So the fact that the in that the research or the survey is say is saying the inverse is true, they're just lying flat out. I'm telling you right now, case closed. They're just lying. Yeah, and I mean maybe <laughs> like I'll give the give the guys the benefit, and maybe they are they forgot there about they injuries <laughs> in their past. <laughs> <laughs> maybe okay, they're maybe they were minimized. They're like, oh, yeah, that really that, wasn't that, an injury. That, yeah, that really wasn't an injury. Oh, <laughs> Sorry, dudes. Um, this is I'm just calling it like it is. <laughs> but the other interesting thing is some of these like genetic risk scores, and so um, we found that the genetic. So we looked specifically within the genetic risk profile at different um, SNPs and um, single nuclear poly polymorphisms. Yep. Make sure I said Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, the SNPs, and we looked at uh, SNPs that helped that were previously correlated with um, bone mineral density and low bone mineral density and bone mineral density risk. And we found that the bone mineral density genetic risk score was correlated with bone mineral density in the male. So hmm. the low bone mineral low bone mineral density genetic risk was consistently was consistent with the bone mineral density that we found in DEXA in males. However, in females, we did not see that. And I will say that we're underpowered. So maybe there would sure. be that finding. But for me, it kind of takes us back to that conversation at the beginning about this multifactorial nature, nature for bone health, bone mineral density, and bone stress injury risk. And are there more hormonal influences, if you kind of had to put a percentage and a weight in a weighted pool as far as um, how much weight do we need to put on the hormonal risk profile versus the genetic risk versus the biomechanics versus the load? And is that different in males and females? And is that different in the ultra running population in particular? And my, unfortunately, my answer is we still don't know. Yeah. And <laughs> but that's why you do the research. That's why you do the research yeah. when you don't know answers. And that's why it's important. I mean, I can remember, you know, part, part of, once again, trying to encourage people to go do the research. It wasn't that long ago where we used a scale at an aid station to determine hydration status. In Western states in particular, they would pull you from the race or make you stay in the aid station if your body weight had dropped below, I think it was 8% of your starting body weight. And we know largely through research that was done at Western States that athletes should actually be losing weight during the course of the race. The race. So this policy had the opposite effect that it was intended to, where athletes were intentionally trying to overhydrate, which causes other problems, blah, blah, blah. But my point with that is, is we didn't know that before the research. Now we know it. 
we can reverse course on that particular policy, which was bad for athletes. Let's get that right. That was not a good policy for athletes to have. And a lot of other races had it, not to throw Western states under the bus or anything like that. Um, but it doesn't happen unless people actually do, people like yourself, Emily, actually do the work. So everybody, let's shoot for 400. How many people are in the Western States field this year? 460 something. 400, let's shoot for 400 people that are involved in yes. Emily's study. Let's just get everybody, especially the women, because as you mentioned, they're underrepresented in ultra running to start out with. And they're underpowered in the study that the, uh, the studies that you're involved in. Um, yep. Okay. So what, what's next? What's next? What do you want to see kind of come down the pipeline three or four years from now in this whole area of bone health and injury prevention, like your wheelhouse? What do you ultimately kind of want to want to see happen in the field? Oh, wow. That's you want to know my dream? Uh, yeah, totally. Because <laughs> we can make it happen. We can make How it happen. How long is this podcast? Um, <laughs> so I think, so here's, here's my dream. Um, one is to have better translation of the science to the people that need yes. to hear it the most. Yes. So I think number one, we can do all the research in the world and do like find all these novel, really interesting findings, but if that's not going to change the behavior of an athlete, the behavior of the coach, the parent, I work with a lot of young athletes and change sometimes the culture. And that's like a big, a big ask, but I think we need to change oftentimes change the culture within the sport. And um, I think that starts with good science, both kind of the like deep down kind of technical science where you're like in the lab but also like out in the world and like what's going to motivate people and kind of look at more behavioral changes and what's um, kind of into that psychological component of all this, get into the psyche. For me, I think that's like a big, um, a big number one, big goal is to be able to find a good way to translate this information in a very like data heavy kind of always coming at you type of world where it's hard to distinguish the the good information from the maybe not bad information, but not the information is there, but it's not maybe presented in the right way and delivered in the right way. And it can really confuse an athlete, even a coach who's just trying to keep up and keep their head above water. And so I think um, kind of my call to action is we as, as physicians and researchers we um, it's, it's part of our job is to, is to educate and not just even in the one-on-one. I think that's an opportunity in the one-on-one clinical setting. But as far as the big impact, I think we need to find ways to disseminate that information better. Let's talk about a way that we have done that because I, I think that this is a good bridge to the last topic I want to talk to you about. I think a really good way that we've done that recently, maybe in the past four or five years, is this transition of describing a certain phenomenon in endurance sports from the female athlete triad to red S or we call, we call it red S in this podcast or reds. <laughs> I, you know, I, I've, I hear it both ways. I talk to, I talk to like red S researchers and she says reds. I say red S and we like, she's not correcting me. I'm not, I'm definitely not correcting her. We're going to go with red S. <laughs> okay. That's okay. the way I Perfect. said it in the audiobook for the last four days since that's what I've been recording. <laughs> we'll go with red S. Okay. But that that is, I think that that is a brilliant illustration of we used to describe this issue this way. 
we realize that there's more nuance to it and we can describe it better in an effort to educate athletes and practitioners. Now we're going to call it this. Everybody got on board with it. This is what I thought was really phenomenal Phenomenal with this whole transition is everybody was like, yes, this did, we needed to make this transition. We're going to be on board with it. We can call it Reds or Red S. I don't care. We're just happy we made the transition. That is what is supposed to happen. When we recognize a failure of what we are doing as a community, we can all collaboratively come together and say, okay, we're going to transition to this. This is the new model. Here's our framework. Here's how we're going to discuss it. And the reason that's a, that it's important, which you just touched on, is that when we are all, we, coaches, scientists, athletes, practitioners, physical therapists, people in the medical setting, orthopedic setting, when we're all operating from the same playbook, there's an intraoperability between all of those groups where we can then leverage all of our strengths. But it doesn't happen unless, or it doesn't happen to the same degree, at least, if we're not using the same vocabulary and we're not using the same playbook. That's why this transition is interesting. But let's get down to the practical pieces for the athletes, because I know you've done a lot of work in this area. First, starting out with the female athlete triad, what was that? What were the failure points? And why are we moving to this new model? And what's important for athletes in this? I'm calling it a new model, but it essentially is. What's important for athletes in this red S model? Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, I think this this is a really good example of yeah, that that translation and where are like where are we really going? Kind of what is our underlying goal? And I think the underlying right. goal is very similar as far as kind of what we're the point that we're trying the message that we're trying to get across. And um, to kind of like get started, so the female athlete triad kind of really stems back um, from like the the 1980s. Um, Dr. Barbara Drinkwater had some like really seminal um, research that identified that this low energy availability has um, an important piece to um, to both kind of hormonal balance and ultimately bone health. So I think we kind of need to remember that like low energy availability is this cornerstone for, for both um, kind of female athlete triad and eventually um, red S. So um, in the American College of Sports Medicine defined um, female athlete triad as um, three interrelated components. Um, low energy availability with or without um, an eating disorder. So it doesn't have to go to the extreme of an eating disorder, but I think um, there are disordered eating um, tendencies. And I can give you some stats even from this, this Western state study that um, over almost half of the males had disordered eating behaviors. And I think two thirds of females around that had um, disordered eating behaviors. Now that's not an eating disorder. And I think that there can be more in that healthier norm of um, disordered eating. Um, it's not really what I meant to say. There can be um, periods of um, different low energy availability cycles within a training that can be done um, safely. But oftentimes, especially if done in isolation, it can lead to um, underfueling for a prolonged period of time. And so this goes to our second piece, which can lead to, in females, irregular periods or what we call menstrual dysfunction. Um, this could be a delay in the first period. So this is an athlete, a, a young female athlete um, who maybe gets her period at 15, 16 or, or later. And, or it can be an athlete who during heavier bouts of training loses her period um, or has not doesn't, doesn't even have to lose her period. That cycle can change. It can get lighter. Um, it can maybe change um, as far as kind of shorter duration or 
bigger challenge is they may just not ovulate, but they have periods or they may have um, changes in other hormonal profiles, but still have periods, but things are, are starting to get um, off kilter. So that reproductive suppression through irregular periods can then lead to changes in bone remodeling, which is the third, um, which is low bone mineral density or impaired bone health. So that might be a history of stress fractures if we don't, um, we don't measure bone mineral density, we don't have to in all athletes, or can actually be low bone mineral density as we defined earlier through American College of Sports Medicine as a, a DEXA Z-score of less than negative one. So those are the three components. So the female athlete triad, um, kind of, there's a lot of research on the relationship of triad risk factors and low bone mineral density, triad risk factors, and um, prospective or future stress fracture. So we were able to use that triad risk tool to actually, as a predictive model, to actually predict um, potential risk for, for future stress fracture. And that could help stratify stratify um, risk for a physician um, who's trying to communicate with an athlete how to maybe adjust um, training or um, in a collegiate setting, they may be restrictive, restricted from actually participating in sport to some degree. So as research evolved, a similar phenomenon was seen in, in male athletes. And so this, um, this research group, this female athlete triad coalition um, coined that term, the a male athlete triad. And the main difference being um, instead of um, irregular periods, males presented with um, hypogonadotropic hypogonadism. You know, you use that and um, say it 10 times fast. You, and tell you did that. that really well. I was wondering how, how you were going to, how that was going to roll off the tongue. Kudos to you. I would have, yeah. I would have stumbled over that a hundred times. What is that by the way? Listeners are yeah. now just yeah. rolled their so, eyes going, I have no idea. That's too many syllables for me to keep track of. <laughs> So that is a, um, a suppression, again, a suppression of sex hormones um, that are more specific to a male, a male athlete. Um, specifically, um, the most common um, hormone that we talk about is testosterone. Um, the challenge with measuring testosterone is there, there's a wide array of normal, more air quotes over here. And the, the lower testosterone, we do see that in endurance athletes. And that can, again, lead to other um, reproductive effects and um, suppressed um, bone mineral density. So similar um, type of phenomena, but um, a little different in, in males. Um, but we're still seeing using we um, in our collegiate athlete population, um, also part of another um, research study called the Healthy Runner Project. Um, it's um, I think been going on for seven or eight years now um, with Stanford and UCLA. And we found that this cumulative risk assessment tool, looking at the male male athlete, is also predictive of future bone stress injury risk. So there's something something happening here. So um, in 2014, the International Olympic Committee came together and saw these um, saw low energy availability as its cornerstone, and really wanted to expand this definition or kind of take this um, expand the triad to um, encompass more health and performance um, consequences. And so they coined the term um, relative energy deficiency in sport to really capture that. Um, and that includes male and female athletes. So I think one thing that one uh, misconception is that REDS is really replacing, um, as far as terms, replacing the, the male or female athlete triad. And really um, the understanding is that the REDS is an expansion of this female and male athlete triad. So if you actually look at, um, I, I know um, Jason, you'll probably show this um, graphic or figure 
um, the both health and performance consequences um, of Redis um, in a really nice kind of circular figure, um, really clean. And part of that um, includes the triangle of um, the triad. And, and I think you can see that there are all these other circles as um, cardiovascular effects um, um, affecting the immune system, affecting um, just overall kind of mood and the mental health pieces. And I think those are really important factors that can be a consequence of low energy availability um, that just have yet to be fully understood and studied to the degree that the triad has been studied. So I would say, I mean, we kind of think about the timeline of um, the female triad and then the male, male athlete triad. And that started in the like, 80s and 90s. And, and Red S is um, really kind of getting getting going in 2014. And thanks to the International, International Olympic Committee has really just um, churned out some great research. Um, there's still a lot of um, lot of work to be done, and I think between um, both both groups, the Triad um, Research Group and the and the Redis Research Group, that um, they're they're both moving forward. I think just like any, um, I think this is very common in academic medicine and in research where there are some clashes as far as ideas and theories. And I think that's, I mean, it's just like healthy competition in, in all 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 realms that that's going to hold each to a high standard and i think one of my goals with some of this um, information and dissemination of information is i hope to have a, a platform that i can really pull in both of those concepts and kind of explain the relationship and the the good research that's coming out of both both of those ideas and i think ultimately the the vision is to help an athlete understand when they're maybe presenting with early signs of something like Redis or the triad, and then be able to almost communicate that, be like, you know, you know, coach, I think I am dealing with some issues related to low energy availability. I need to kind of reassess and look at um, maybe my, my training or maybe just like fueling timing yeah. and, and, and make those adjustments earlier and hopefully salvage the season make both coach and athlete happier because um an, a, a running and training athlete is a happy athlete 100 <laughs> percent. what so you mentioned so you mentioned you want to educate people on what some of the early signs are what are you finding out so far like what are some of these things that the athletes should watch out for where they need to put a pause and say okay i need to assess this and then we can take it to It'd be really easy to just say, listen, you need to increase your energy intake. But what's the like functionally, what's the outcome? How should the athlete course correct if they do see any of those signs? Yeah, I think the like the easy, the low hanging fruit, the one that's been studied the most is um, kind of an athlete or female athlete losing her period. Right. I mean, that's the one we talk about the most. And for me, that's kind of late in the game um, that yeah, right. the findings show that like low energy availability low energy availability can really lead to those hormonal effects that don't lead to that um, delay in period or that um, suppression. And I mean, that can happen within a week or two um, and really start to affect some of the bone remodeling and some of those, um, those serologic markers or those um, bone biomarkers. So for me, that's, that's too late. And I think it also is challenging because a lot of athletes are on different types of hormonal replacement therapies, Mm. which is another topic that we could, we could really get into as far as some of the challenges one and understand and kind of teasing out, um, an athlete's like true, um, kind of internal hormonal profile when they are, um, on um, some type of hormonal replacement, but, but hold on, this, this shouldn't get glossed over. 
if yeah. athletes are in this state, you're saying stop, full stop the train. Like that's too late. You need to completely reassess what's what's going on because it is such mm-hmm. a lagging indicator or it lags yes. so long. Okay. I want yes. everybody to, yes. to pay attention to that because that's super important. Let's try to back up though. We're, we're, if there are leading indicators, what could they be? Or what are some of the earlier, at least the, don't lag as much, some of the earlier mm-hmm. indicators that issues might start uh, uh, come, come, come about because of red S. Yeah, I think, um, this is where it gets gray, just like full disclosure, because, um, we are still trying to understand, um, what I think it's, it's hard because there's a lot of overlap and one, um, the chronic fatigue, I think I see that an athlete maybe is underperforming or consistently underperforming. And that can also be a part of a training cycle too. So it's like, how do you know when, um, and I think it overlaps with kind of overtraining syndrome, which is really hard. And this diagnosis of exclusion is, are they overreaching or are they in this early red S um, phase? And I mean, the true question, Jason is what's the difference? Like are, is that early red S if addressed really quickly, kind of part of sometimes that, that, that training cycle. And I think what an athlete needs to understand is kind of consistent, kind of underperforming as far as um, just, and, and feel, and, and poor, poor sleep and irritability and all these other factors that can be from a number of different reasons, but can also be from just consistently that low energy availability piece. Sometimes there's kind of obvious um, kind of looking back at their training if there is an acute change and an acute increase, like sometimes I see it in those transitions when an athlete goes from um, middle school to high school, high school to college, college to um, kind of out in there on their own, maybe adjusting or kind of going to that next race distance, they start to fall into um, a, a low energy availability state. Um, you can start to look if there are some changes in um, just overall kind of cardiovascular profile. So this is something that I'm really interested in to see if, you know, will heart rate variability be a potential future indicator of um, that low energy availability state? I think it's hard, again, to tease out whether that like overtrained and kind of maybe too much strain is is also at play. I want but everybody be- to listen to Emily's vocabulary. Will it be not is it currently? Because if you survey the landscape right now, you can definitely get the impression that that you know ship has left the dock. That we've already determined that heart rate variability can give us these indicators on X, Y, or Z, and it is very much not the case. Yeah, I mean, I think we're still like we ought to be like honest and humble with what with where we yeah. are in the science and the interpretation of the science. And I think it's really easy, especially when there's. Um, something fancy and, and like something new out there that that could be a, a quick fix and a quick answer and um, has the right algorithm could be um, interpreted that way. And I will say that like something like heart rate variability could be a um, could be a very useful, but I also can see it being um, very distracting. Yeah. And and I think it's, it's all about thinking about the all these other factors. So I know I know I'm not giving you a, a very clean answer as some, far as some of those early signs. And I think it's because we really don't know enough to to be able to to 
to share with an athlete some of those early signs without maybe getting some of those some of those blood markers, for example, um, some of the thyroid um, function, like free T4, um, total T3, so you can start to see those getting suppressed earlier on. But I think expecting an athlete or expect, like understanding how to interpret th those lab results is really, really challenging um, kind of in the in a practical setting. Yeah, that's one of the big issues I've always had with uh, a lot of the blood biomarker companies that are out there, the direct-to-consumer ones, is that you either have to be doing the testing on such a frequent basis and then creating an individual profile for the people in the the frequent listeners of this podcast will remember the podcast I did with Sean Arnett. We talked about this a lot. The frequency has to be such the, almost on a weekly or bi-weekly basis it has to be so consistent that you can build an individual profile for an athlete in order to use some of those biomark biomarkers as some of the initial indicators of whatever you're looking at low energy availability overtraining, over fatigue kind of whatever it is if you're not taking those blood samples that frequently you get a lot of false positives and false negatives and you you almost are looking at a disease state at that point and then course correcting for a disease state versus an optimization state so mm -hmm. that's another 10 podcasts that you just gave me emily thank you for that <laughs> um, anytime but i i think the the drive home point for the listeners is that energy availability or lack thereof is at the center of all of these cascades of all of the this cascade of negative consequences the negative mm -hmm. consequences were starting to flush out how much co like cause and effect there actually is and it's different for different people but energy availability is at the center of it how do you get there well the simple answer or how do you not get there the simple answer is is make sure that you're in an it, you're not in an energy uh, depleted state that is way easier said than actually done particularly with the training loads that uh, that ultramarathoners have to regularly encounter throughout their training. A simple way, though, is not to deploy any strategies that intentionally do that, right? And we see this a lot, particularly in the ultramarathon and, and Ironman triathlete, uh, triathletes see this uh, as well, where there's just been this recent rash of athletes that are athletes and coaches that are trying to leverage intentionally leverage low energy states to produce a metabolic adaptation. They want enhanced fat oxidation and things like that. And I think the thing to keep in mind is, is that always comes at a cost. And many times that cost far outweighs the very small benefit that you could get. And you could even argue that there's no benefit at all. No, I, I think you is such a good point. And I really enjoyed your podcast interview with Craig Sale. Shout out to what Craig is yeah. doing and, and Kirsty is Kirstie's doing out there on just better understanding um, those fluctuations in fueling. Um, Trent Stellingworth is also another big um, researcher uh, in like in that world. And I was just reading some of the research specifically in that ultra endurance population and um, like fueling and fueling strategies. And I think there's always this dream that we're going to try to like kind of cheat the system and figure out how to... <laughs> Like find that sweet ratio. I mean, do we really need carbs? Oh, maybe not. And then ultimately, I just I loved some of this research um, Louise Burke just put out that really kind of refuted and like all like not all, but just had, was like, hey, like pump the brakes here. Carbs are really important for multiple different reasons, especially in, in an ultra endurance world. And so 
I, I think that you just you highlight a really important point that fuel, um, there are certain kind of specifics that we need to think about as far as the type of fuel that's putting into our body. But I think everyone can agree that that fueling is incredibly important. And, and the timing of that, especially in, in an ultra marathon runner, you need to have that dialed. You need to practice. You need to find ways. Like if you struggle to get fuel in your body at like three hours, four hours into a race, then you need to practice that and, and figure out how, how to get that fuel in your body. Because ultimately that's going to affect your performance. It's going to like wreak havoc on just multiple different systems, including bone health, but we're, we're understanding all the other effects that that may have that we're, that we don't fully understand, especially in um, the ultra endurance population. And I think another like piece is the whole idea of supplementation and thinking that you can just supplement with all of these different micronutrients and kind of that's just going to be this panacea that allows you <laughs> to be resilient and unbreakable. But I think that there are t- there is a time and a place, and I, I prescribe supplements quite a bit, especially if an athlete who has an injury, to just make sure everything is optimized. But but really thinking about ways to get that from the diet, and if there if it's consistently low, kind of asking the the big why. Um, that like some of the other factors that could be could be at play too, because long term micronutrient d- deficiencies are going to going to be a problem and could lead to an injury or could also lead to other kind of health effects as far as kind of prolonged fatigue and other other factors. Hundred percent take home messages is eat your wheaties, people. <laughs> eat your wheaties. <laughs> eat your wheaties, <laughs> Emily. We're gonna let you go. Um, I promise. I'm gonna put the links to everything in the show notes. So if you're at all interested in Emily's research or any of the research that's coming up at, uh, out at Western States, go ahead and, and view the show notes. Also have links to your social media accounts. You're a good Instagram follow, by the way. Go follow <laughs> Emily on Instagram. She puts out really great content. Yeah. It's informative for me as a coach. It helps me keep track of what's going on just by following people like you, Emily. What, uh, what else? How else can athletes interact with you or interact with the research that you're involved with? Yeah, so I... Um... Yeah, I've got the got the like the Twitter and the like the Instagram um, to kind of try and push information. I will say, what's the I handle? Go, what's the handle? Um, so Emily Kraus MD is the Twitter handle. Yeah. Um, K R A U S is my um, how do you spell my last name? And then I have I have two Instagram accounts. Which if I if I needed anything else to do, adding another Instagram <laughs> account, let's just throw it on the <laughs> throw it on the list. Um, so there's Emily Kraus MD, which is a little more social, um, more kind of family and like fun. And then I try and do it. Um, Emily Kraus, MD underscore sports science, where I try to push and then I'm trying to be better about pushing some good um, information to kind of the followers and what I'm interested in and some of the research that that I'm doing. So um, those are kind of the social media. And then I do have a, a website that if you are interested in trying to get in touch with me, um, both for like a clinical with clinical questions, um, there are ways um, often to do kind of telehealth visits um, out of state. It gets a little bit more challenging, but we, um, I'll kind of do my best to help an athlete in whatever way I can. And that's um, emilykrausmd.com. <laughs> <laughs> Just Google Emily Kraus. You'll find yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Emily, on behalf of the listeners and for me personally, thank you for what you do. You've helped me as a, as a professional throughout the course of your career, whether you realize it or not, but also you've individually helped a lot of my athletes uh, with various issues as they've gone through their, their running career. So I owe you a debt of gratitude for that. You will continue, since we all suck at preventing injuries, we've already been through that. That's going to continue. So I, I appreciate the fact that we have individuals like yourself that we can continually lean on. Thank you, Jason, for this opportunity. Thanks for having this podcast to kind of give a lot of these um, researchers and clinicians and scientists a voice to be able to kind of get to your listeners. Because that's, I mean, that's why we're here and it's um, super rewarding. So thanks for the opportunity. 100%. All right, runners, there you have it. There you go. Much thanks to Emily for coming on the podcast today. We will have to bring her back on when we have a little bit more information as to what actually turned out from all these studies that we are doing at Western States. I cannot emphasize enough. If you have the opportunity to participate in research, please go do so. It helps our understanding of the sport or injuries in this case or bone health in this case a tremendous amount. And none of that is possible if we don't get people to volunteer for the study. So go out there, volunteer for the studies. You will thank yourself later and I thank you in advance. I also thank everybody for listening to this podcast. If you have not had the opportunity, go on over to Apple Podcasts and give this podcast a rating or a review. It means a lot to me and helps out the podcast a tremendous amount. All right, that's it for today, folks. And as always, we will see you out on the trails. Mm-hmm.